Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Dave Slemon, founding partner of Elite Performance Partners. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Dave, where did the idea of Elite Performance Partners come from and why should football stand up and take notice of your work? Um, so where it came from, where it came from is quite simple. So I had been working in uh, a headhunting firm, in a recruitment firm for three, four years. I'd, um, before that, played rugby professionally. That was my first kind of job, if you call it that, or career. And then as I kind of transitioned out of playing, as my body kind of gave up on me, I um, went into headhunting, chemical and energy sectors. And where the idea came from was just spent a lot of time in Germany and the Netherlands in, in, a, in an airport in Germany coming back three searches we'd ran three very different roles but fundamentally the same process and rigging that we put around all of them and it's pretty thorough it's professional it was unemotional it's pretty objective and I was thinking why doesn't sport do that and I, I guess I didn't know exactly that it didn't but I just you know I was very much thinking back to myself as an athlete, as a player, and I just think, and just thinking of the importance of coaches, of strength and conditioning guys, of physios, of psychology, of the people around you who'd, and predominantly I was thinking of people who had a really positive impact on me and, and a couple of things like, geez, if they weren't there at that moment, there's no way I would have played professionally. That was kind of my thought process. I'm like, geez, you want to make sure you, you put some rigor around a real scrutiny. You know, you look what you're expecting players to go through. I presume you don't just hire people willy-nilly and not think about it so that's that's where the idea came from i spoke to four or five people it didn't take long to realize that there was a bit of a gap and so that's that's where the business came from and i think where the business has evolved to is yes that the core part of what we do is still search so we still do like search and selection selection being the coach piece we do um and there is a difference but we actually much more of a kind of leadership firm now so we recognize that we there's three parts. There's an advisory bit, um, there's a search bit, and then there's a leadership development piece. So it's really about making sure organisations and individuals can reach their potential. And and we have always looked at it like that, but now we actually very clearly do that and partner with organisations as opposed to just kind of one-off recruitment. And do you see that evolving further in the future? Because I assume, obviously, when you begun with that in mind, it wasn't, there wasn't like one destination you wanted to get to. It was more or less iterative process yeah so i think it will yeah i think in many ways sports are fascinating industry because it's kind of unique but it also absolutely isn't so there's so many things that other industries have done that maybe haven't quite got into sport and even you know we're just talking about the difference between the sport in the us or in north america and, and to the uk and how how they look at it as entertainment so sport absolutely isn't too bad at looking at different sports and trying to um, learn from them and trying to learn from, and you know, it's got, there's definitely ways that other industries can learn from sport, but my belief is that there's way more that sport can learn from other industries and the way they do things. So um, yeah, there's more to come, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely, in a lot of areas, but I don't know which one to start with. <laughs> And I mean, we were just speaking off camera there. I mean, I first I first encountered your own work um, on an interview with Simon Austin of Training Ground Guru, which is something yeah. I'll link below in the show comments. I mean, fantastic interview back in 2020, I believe. But you had one quote 
And it's in relation to the most common limitation we have found in preventing teams from reaching their potential is the belief that football is different to other sports and that ideas yeah. from outside are not transferable. I mean, how has that, that moved since being into the industry where, I mean, reading that quote above, it's quite a fixed mindset. Yeah, it is a bit, isn't it? Yeah, and I, and I think you know, it's not a football thing. It's a it's a sport thing generally, and it's normal that you you got to make sure that you get the best from that sport. But that mindset is limiting if you believe there's only one way of doing things, and it is how you talk about how will the roles. So just thinking about that, that's that is a while ago. That's I think actually we wrote um, an article. I think maybe the year before that about the five new roles in sport and kind of what are the ones so they are if i remember rightly there was well, the sporting director director of high performance director of strategy and analytics i think director of people and teams and then performance net they were the five and sporting director definitely is becoming a little bit more kind of common or director of football or technical director you know, probably the same things in the uk and i think when we did that work we're kind of idealistic of like, yeah, the world's going to change. And it hasn't really. There's some good practice around. And what we realized, and this was not intentional, and in fact, we didn't realize it until a good year after, is if you go across those five roles, the, the, the there are actually five key traits that they all have in common. So five things that I think are much more the human skills that you would need. Um, I can go through them because I've, I've, I remember them. They're kind of seared into my brain. Um, but the, there's, there are those five traits. So yes, the first thing is though, if you believe that um, there's a Henry Ford quote, like if, I can't remember exactly the quote, but if you if you believe a certain thing, you're right because you, until you change, happy, until you become open to what's possible, you're not going to be able to change it. So there is still in a lot of sports. Um, I say not just football. It really we do the most work in football on it. it you know, it, it's the same across the board. Rugby and cricket would be very similar. Team sports, particularly, um, especially when there's um, promotion and relegation, you know, it's understandable that there's a short-term fix or focus. Um, but yeah, there's still a bit to go, I guess. I'm an optimist there. So. Yeah, and I, I mean, one of the quotes I always like in the back to is um, Naval Ravikant, the Almanac of Naval. He speaks about playing long-term games with long-term people. I mean, that much that must be a crucial part of your role, right? Too, you're speaking about the short term there, but surely, like when you're looking to match make yourself with uh, ideal partners, you're looking for that long term strategic fit. Yeah, I guess it depends what the criteria is for the success of that role, because yes, you you don't want to think sh well. The first, the first, the first skill or trait of of the people who um, of those roles is long term planning and short term success. I think that the thing that people do um, generally where people go wrong is they look at it, it's either it's this or that, you know, and it's definitely always at, it's always both. It's and or, it's both, it's nearly always the both things. So I think you still, you've got to be realistic. I mean, you go into an environment as a specialist practitioner or as a coach, um, it can be brutal, you know, that the players have an expectation if they're professional players that they want to see the impact that you're going to have. So you have to be able to deliver. There's no question of that. And I've seen it in my own eyes that if it doesn't, if you don't immediately get that, it's really difficult. Um, 
So let's not go away from the realities of how demanding it is. We want to create an environment where people can still develop and learn and grow. Um, but you're right, it's balancing up um, how people get measured. Because as long as that you're given some time or the metrics isn't purely winning or losing, if, you, if we're looking on the performance side, and too often um, we spoke kind of just about actually kind of how you recruit coaches, as long as you put in a criteria for what success is, and clearly if you are a Premier League first team head coach manager, you're going to be focused on winning. And if you're not, you're not in the right job. <laughs> but you hopefully aren't. That isn't the only thing you're being measured on. Because if you were, there'd only be one winner every year and 19 coaches would get sacked. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to count on that as well, I remember listening to a few podcasts of yours before that you've been a guest on. And you gave the great example of Amazon and Lego being like, yeah. when you're looking at, yeah, when you're looking at that hiring process, right, it's neither, yeah. it's always and or. 50% yeah. capability, 50% cultural fit. You may be yeah. able to elaborate a bit upon that, Dave. Yeah, so it's quite a funny story about that. So that example, so we do, I say, when you look at the criteria, so we have a criteria-based model for how you recruit people. So those those numbers and percentages come from the principle of, you can have a job description that will have 25 to 30 things on it typically. Um, they're important. They're factual in the sense of these are the 25 to 30 things you would need to do. And it'd be pretty rare that somebody could do all of them really well, but it, it might absolutely be part of the job. But more importantly, you cannot assess people in an interview against that many things. You just can't. So you might have somebody who's really good at, say, 10, and then somebody else who's really good at another 10. So how do you decide which 10 are the best? So what we um, always boil it down to is what are the five or six things that are the most important priorities to be good in or to have skill in for this role. And of those five or six things, the one thing we insist is on there is cultural fit. Um, and what we mean by that is, is, is just the recognition that it isn't just the skills or capabilities that you have, it's the values that you have, it's the way you are as a person. It's kind of, um, it's not always that easy to articulate where you feel you'll fit. It often is very easy to see where you won't. So the example that we gave um, is Lego and Amazon. So Anna, my business partner, she, in a previous uh, company, she worked with those two companies and she was doing kind of senior digital marketing type roles. So very similar briefs in terms of the job description. So in her words, she's like, happy days. I'm really, I'm gonna get paid twice and then you have to really do one list. Um, and the reality was that when you got into it is that the cultures of Lego and Amazon are poles apart. So Lego is the biggest family-run business in the world. It is, in terms of the size of the brand, it is um, a genuine family business, so they still run it from Denmark. It is collaboration to the nth degree. It's almost death by a thousand cuts. They would genuinely rather um, not make a decision than make a decision that not everybody believed in and agreed with. So that is one, one side. And Amazon is much more of an, an eye culture. So they want you to take pride in your work. They want you to talk about what you have done and they expect you to deliver and those are the expectations. So if you, you can picture, and they may be slightly exaggerated, but if you think about those two positions and you think about yourself, I think people tend to move one way or the other, but they, you could probably, as I say, if the role's the same, you could definitely fudge an interview. You could definitely get through an interview but more importantly, you couldn't thrive in both environments. You just couldn't. If you're a Lego person and you go to Amazon, 
you wouldn't last very long and it wouldn't be much fun. And actually we use that as a really important barometer of when we're doing processes because you know, we're not selling opportunities to people. We present them as kind of warts and all. It's like, this is the reality on the ground. This is, you know, these are great environments. These are great organizations, but there are also real challenges because what you don't want has never happened like this. Somebody to go in and go, oh, that's not what I thought it would be like. You want, to, you want to see people get excited by the challenge and you want it to fit both sides. So um, yeah, that's why the cultural piece is so important and, and people's journeys are, are often more important than the experience that they have. People can really overvalue experience and they can overvalue the number of years that somebody's been doing something. Not that some experience isn't important, it absolutely is, but unpicking that is, um, is a skill and you know we've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> Fantastic there, and I'm intrigued to learn more about one of the pieces which you touched upon at the air and at the end, sorry, there. And I think it's the recognition that not all leaders coming into executive positions, they're not 100% perfect. You know, they're, they're diamonds that need refinement, they're diamonds that need polishing. And you spoke about in an article before about being out of your depth in a leadership position. I mean, it's the norm, it's not the exception. I mean, is that a tough sell to employers? What about putting people in roles who aren't perfect? Or Well, I think it's the case of when you're matching ideal candidates with that fit, right? A huge part of what you do too is obviously recognise yeah. there's room here for growth and CPD. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. That, it's that uneasy tension, you could say at times, as we spoke about there, between short-term success and yeah. long-term. And, and you know what? If I'm being totally honest... I have to give Anna a huge amount of credit for when she came in the business. I probably, as I founded it a long time ago, I was probably a little bit too much. So we've got one of the sayings that no one's more than 80% fit against a theoretical brief. So in this instance, if you have a crit five criteria, let's say one's cultural fit, you have four others, effectively, you don't have to be brilliant at one of them. So this is quite a good way of, if you talk about football, people say, if you want to work in football, you have to have football experience and you put as one of the criteria football experience, it allows somebody who's really strong in the other four, so they could be, you know, um, strategic planning, let's say leadership, strategic planning, um, communication, relationship building, you know, leadership, whatever it might be, if football's the last one, and they're great at the other four, well, they should be considered. So it's a way of actually unpicking biases and stopping people being too narrow in their focus. Um, but you know, what I, I was probably a little bit too 100% to begin with of, you know, wanting to impress clients, of wanting to kind of be liked, of wanting to kind of get the business off the ground. And so possibly could be selling candidates too much. And we absolutely just don't do that now. So we say at the start that, well, very much the 50-50 the piece that we say diversity is a competitive advantage. So getting, don't just hire people like yourself in a whole different cognitively mainly but a whole different uh, ranges of diversity but then if you go in the mindset that no one's more than 80 percent fit we'll present strengths and weaknesses and do you know what happened is and this is the best thing about it is what because we weren't pretending that this was like a perfect solution the leaders we work with relaxed they didn't pretend to be perfect either so suddenly there's much more openness honest, authentic communication about even their strengths and weaknesses. And what we do is present candidates. And I remember vividly the first time we did it of presenting it. And as soon as we said what their weakness was, the first time we did it, they went, 
oh, don't worry, we've got somebody else in the team who's really good at that. It doesn't matter. And you're like, perfect. And it just highlights the main reason of doing it is that no single person is hired in isolation. They're hired with a team around them, they're hired with leaders, they're hired with support systems internally, um, potentially external resource as well. So, you know, this is a work in progress. We all are human beings, we make mistakes. You know, sometimes you see on the coaching side, there's like, oh, we can't hire, we can't hire him. You know, he's been sacked. I'm like, well, of course he's been sacked. He's been a leader in a high level position. What you want to do is interview him as soon as he's he or she has been um, fired and let's see if they've learned from it. Well, I know you had Stuart Lancaster on your uh, podcast. You know, reason we were, you know, it was difficult for him to get a role immediately after 2015, right? Because um, one of the best coaches in the world, undoubtedly, incredible success, and um, would have learned a huge amount from that. Um, and yet there'd be, a, there'd be a kind of a feeling or a rhetoric that, well, if somebody's been um, sacked or they haven't been successful um, with the outcome on the role that they aren't because well, it's obviously ridiculous. So, by the way, if you do interview them and they haven't learned a thing, then you know, self-awareness being high on the list of things that we think are important skills for leaders, um, then maybe you give them a bit more time to reflect. <laughs> um, but, yeah. I think it was quite strategic too from Leinster and Stuart himself in terms of the role which he was placed into for the past few years, right, at Dave too, at Leinster, because it's one case of you're saying after 2015 not being able to find that job. But perfect fit between him and Leinster. And it's the case, yeah. right, he's not being put front and centre of the helm, but he's there yeah. behind Leo Cullen. And Leo yeah. Cullen is getting his IP, he's getting his expertise, decision-making. It's planting yeah. seeds. Yeah, yeah. And he's, made, he's spoken very openly, isn't it, about the, the break, um, the breakdown within roles between leadership, management and coaching, and maybe him getting that style, but it not being exactly the perfect fit for him. So I think, and it is two ways, isn't it? I don't want to really use him as an example. It's not fair when he's not... On the, on the podcast but the point is is just that um you want to make sure when you go into it people rightfully and we help a lot of people kind of want to get into positions it's it's actually um it's got to be right for you too don't just take anything and ask as many questions as you get asked because you've got to make it sure you know yes they're interviewing you but you're absolutely interviewing them too yeah and do you see that being as a potential antidote to the hamster wheel of what is the football industry because typically You'd see these. You'd see a few Premier League managers, notably that have been sacked this season, and you think, mm -hmm. God, for all the turmoils and tribulations they've been through over the coming year, a lot more grey hairs as well. Within two, three weeks, they're back linked with jobs from any number of clubs, clubs that are hugely scattered in the twenty-one to twenty-five-year-old age range. Not a group of seasoned pros could be a Premier League club. Clubs all over the world. Does that mm -hmm. surprise you in the slightest anymore? Oh, no, not really. I, I kind of, I don't, no, I, I don't, I don't let it bother me. You know, you kind of, that is the, um, that's the culture. That is the, the cultural norm of, of what happens. And that's fine. You know, what's really nice is that if you want, if you've got some very clear criteria of how you do things, you don't have to follow that model. You know, so when people say, oh, it, that's the way we've always done it around here. I mean, that's you know, red right to a ball that alarm bell should be going off or we can change it and we can improve it there's a gap there clearly so i think for us on the, on the coaching stuff that we do it's the role that is kind of most likely to be hijacked by emotion of people and if you're a fan of a team absolutely it's your it's a privilege to be hijacked by your emotions that's why you do it because you care and it's fun but if you're running the organization 
and owners, um, but the most senior people within clubs, often, it is the role that they would get involved in the most. Um, often yeah. because well, they own it and they want to, and that's why they bought it, is to get be involved, and nothing wrong with that. But then how they make decisions is kind of flawed. So the irony is that whilst it's the role most likely to be hijacked by their emotions, it's the one also that you can be most object objective in because there's often data to support performance. So we work with an organization called 21st Group. We partner on that stuff. So you've got the objective information about their performance, about how many young players they play, about the style of play they have, about all these different things. Um, and then we've got the more subjective, and it's not purely objective, of course, we'll go into that, but um, the subjective way of interviewing them to understand how they coach, how they approach things. Um, and I think the, the key here is that the one thing we'd say around how you recruit coaching is don't start with people, start with the criteria. Because often, and we've been there um, with teams, is that you go into a meeting and they've already got four or five names. It doesn't happen in any other industry in the world that I've seen of, of all the ones that I've worked in. You don't walk into a, a chemical business when I did in Germany and they don't sit down and go, right, we want a new CEO. And here are the five that we're thinking of for the other different chemical companies. It just doesn't happen. They go, these are the criteria of where we are as an organization. This is the type of employee base that we have. This is the strategy for where we want to go in the future. So this is the type of experience that we might be looking for or the type of person, the type of leader. It doesn't happen in football so much. It goes, oh. well, they need to have coached at this level before. Okay, well, let's pick what you mean. So start with criteria and then you know align expectations around that. And that's how you get some clarity because you know the thing with data is, and we've done it like we really hope when we use the data that we've been helping inform decision making of the of the decision makers but you're not often you're just helping them understand with in a bit of detail the decisions they've already made so um yeah slightly gone off track there but you kind of asked about coaching so percent. Oh, <laughs> it's interesting and even one of the most important roles in the football industry you could say is that traditional technical director role mm. however i mean linking it back to some recent studies from fifa and the fa indeed of where technical directors come from. More often than not, they come from heads of recruitment roles that are largely operational to yeah. overarching sport director role. That's obviously a lot more strategic. Mm. Yeah, totally. And I guess we tutor on the, the level five technical directors course for the FA. And that's kind of, uh, Dan Ashworth was part of bringing that in when he was there. Obviously we've gone to Brighton and now Newcastle. But the, for exactly to help with that, there was no pathway for um, scouts or recruitment people and then also to help when you get to that level to learn the skills that you need because you aren't necessarily taught them so um, and actually that, that comes back a little bit to what we talked about before about those five traits that those five roles have so sporting director will be one of them and it's like well what are the skills so do you know what and there's nothing wrong with you probably do need some football experience to really understand the game but if that's a kind of hygiene factor, if that's a, a baseline, okay, what are the things? So the long-term planning, short-term success. The other four things um, that we looked, that we realized, the second one was having real leadership skills. So what we mean by that is an ability to have, have a vision of what success would look like, to create kind of clarity around that, to maybe to align people towards it, to ask really good questions. So real genuine skills that you can learn over say traditional, leadership styles like being autocratic or you know, that sort of thing. So real genuine skills. We noticed that the third thing on that list was kind of being a polyglot. So that ability to 
speak different languages and we mean not French and Spanish, although that, you know, if you in Premier League football, that would clearly be really helpful. We do, we mean kind of like the language of the boardroom or the training ground or a coach you know, or the players. You know, it's just understanding their challenges, how they look at the world. And the last two is kind of like the fourth would be like a cultural understanding. So recognizing, you know, we say cultural fit, understanding the importance of the environment of where maybe the city is or the country is, that those things aren't do matter and what the people who work in it are like. And the last one, and this one maybe we weren't necessarily expecting across the five is, is a coaching relationship. So still, whilst none of those roles are coaches, I suppose director high performance, you argue is, but is that recognition that you're still thinking like a coach, so you're still giving good feedback, you're still creating an environment which is challenging and supporting, you're not, um, I say autocratic, and you're not overseeing people. So they're the five, and it just, just made me think of them because that role's grown, and the way to think of it, and the way people at the moment think about it is, is experience, they come through recruitment, which it doesn't, that's another question as to where they should come from, but it's not about where they come from. It's about the skills that they have and how you recognize them. And I think it's not that difficult to do that, actually, but um, it is a skill. One thing you spoke about there, Dave, you touched upon was the ability to speak different languages. Dan yeah. Ashworth, who you've worked with, too, I mean, he's a, he has yeah. a different phrase to coin it, calls the 360 skill set. And that's largely where this T-shaped practitioner, specialist mm -hmm. journalist, comes into play. For those that don't know, could you be able to elaborate a bit more about the specialist generalist? So I guess the specialist generalist is, I guess there is a move away from, so there's a, a typical T-shaped kind of profile of um, somebody who is a specialist, who has deep specialism in one area. That's broadly kind of what that is. Um, we've actually moved away from looking at in that way. And, and the way it would work is you would tend to be a practitioner in one area. So whether you're a physio, a doctor, an analyst, a coach, a strength and conditioning coach, whatever it might be, psychologist, you would focus through um, a specialism. You would then go to be a, so let's go physio. You're a physio. You might then specialize in a couple of areas, then become the head of physiotherapy. And then often you get stuck there because you're at the top of your specialism and it's difficult to then bridge that gap to become the overarching specialist, sorry, the overarching leader for other areas. So that point of being the leader of a team where you're the specialist to the leader of a team of teams where you're not the specialist in all of them. And the way we look at that is moving away from a T-shape to more of a kind of a comb. <laughs> so you have a bit less breadth, but you have, you have it in a few more things. So we'd advise people as they go through their careers is do a bit of coaching, do a bit of analysis. This is easier said than done maybe do a bit of recruitment, work in different environments or be exposed to different things. So it makes you at least aware of that there are different viewpoints. You know, you, when we look at somebody, somebody's been in the same club for 12 years, they could be brilliant. It's not for one second to suggest they aren't, but it's harder if you've been in one place. You know, we talked about, um, obviously you're, you're from Ireland and I, play, I played, a, lived in Ireland, lived in Gore for three years. And it completely transformed my view of what good could be or how you, how to do things. Cause it's really, really different to being in Liverpool or London where I, you know, grew up in Liverpool and have been living in London. So it's really different, right? You know, being in, in where you are now, it's kind of, it is different. And I think if you haven't actually been in those environments, it's different. So the idea of 
yes, you can have a specialist, but that generalism of understanding enough perspectives to be able to see other people's viewpoints is, is effectively the point. And I mean, before we wrap up, Dave, I've had another Dave on the show uh, just before Christmas, Dave Tenney. I've oh, yeah. That's a high performance yeah. at Austin FC. And at the end of the show, he spoke about the 80-20 rule. However, he used the inverse of it for learning, learning which is he'll use, he'll rid every year 20% of what he's done the year before or what he has learned. So 20% upon learning. And it might sound a little bit convoluted, but where I want to go with that is looking at the modern football market and seeing how the football industry is evolving, where it's going to be growing and developing, how are elite performance partners refining and polishing their work to help the future technical directors and future head coaches? Oh, that's a good question. I like the way they kind of flip it around. The unlearning piece is a really interesting one because it's something that we have looked at with um, Right to Dream, who we work with. It's kind of there's a thing around unlearning, which is, um, and it, it, it frames for different, different ways, I guess. So I, I really like the idea that some stuff you want to take with you, some stuff you necessarily don't, right? So it's like keep a level of humility that you don't have all the answers. And Midday's um, a great guy, brilliant, brilliant person. Um, how are we evolving? And I guess the way our business has evolved is to try and just help organizations a bit more. So, and this is where we come from anyway. It's, it's not um, cynical and hopefully it's like, this is what we believe in is that we believe, I, I know I get joked all the time, everybody works here saying, I just want to be part of the team still. And, and that, you know, we partner across three parts of our business. So yes, of course, it's important to hire really good people and develop them. You know, or, or find the best talent. There's, you know, there's always people saying there's a war for talent, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But first of all, you've got to think about um, what does your organisation want to be known for? What, do, what what's its identity? Um, what's its purpose? You know, what does it stand for? What's the vision of success? Where it goes? What are the types of leaders it wants to create? What are the behaviours that you want to see? And what do you want to be proud of for being there? So just thinking about we, and what's the kind of um, there's like a duller bit of like, what should your, your organizational structure look like to enable those things? So we, we've got that bit that we do. And then we do lot, we help people recruit the right people, but you can't really do that unless you think about that bit first and you think about the, the amount of talent and ability and potential you've already got in your organization. The idea that you just hire people in all the time is wrong. We just don't agree with that. Uh, in fact, the reason partly that we started this part of the business is we get asked about hiring people and we say, oh, I wouldn't hire somebody. You've got some great people here. It wasn't a great business decision for us. But then you hire good people, but then you've got to develop them. So I guess the way that we've evolved to help is just to have more of a continuum, to have more of a partnership. You know, this is the best organizations are constantly evolving. And the idea that people are saying at the start that the best people are curious, the best organizations don't think they got to a destination, you know, it is a journey. You want to constantly, how do you create sustainable success? Well, you kind of think you never got there and you're always trying to improve. So we've tried to just go on that journey with people in partnership with them so that we don't feel, you know, you don't want people to think that you're being opportunistic or just taking money off them for hiring people, you know, we're not agents. We don't represent people from the outside coming in. We represent the organization. And the best way to do that is to understand them better and then help the people once they're in get better. So um, that's a kind of slightly long-winded answer, but that's kind of how we like to do it. And um, 
the, and what that means is you probably work with less organizations but you definitely work more deeply with them and you start to really understand what makes them tick what the environment's like and you know we've got a couple of offices in australia and in the uk hopefully soon to be in america too but wherever it doesn't really matter where your office is you've got to go to the place that you're going to be hiring for people or you're going to be working for you don't, you don't have to be based there but you need to go to feel what it's like on the ground so I guess the way we're helping is to just understand them more and then do more with them over a longer period of time. 100%. I mean, the organization is always mission-driven, value-driven, purpose-driven, will always be the one that's just transactional, mm-hmm. you know, on the yeah. cusp of exploitation, really. But um, Dave, you know what? I don't know if that's actually true. They might not always, externally, always win, or always appear to have, but you've got a choice of how you, how you live and how you operate. So, you know, there are absolutely organizations who don't take that approach, who will win. And that's fine. That is fine. But just actually articulate what it is you stand for and how you want to do things. We actually say we're not for everyone because there are some organizations who work in our space who generally just tell their clients whatever they want to hear. You know, and that's fine. But we don't do that. We have an opinion. Why hire some uh, organization that's in the market all the time and then not um, want to know what they think too? Um, and by the way, we're happy if, if when we give our advice or we give what we think, you ignore it because ultimately it is their decision. They are the decision makers. It's you know the book stops with them. But if you don't want that, you know we do quite. A, we're doing a big project. If you like, we look at psychology. Some psychologists. It's a very difficult space to be in because you do sometimes need to be that kind of. The truth, you, you got to tell people the truth. It's not always what they want to hear. That's going to be across whole different areas. And not always everybody wants to hear that. So um, we recognize that we won't be for everyone. Hopefully it doesn't make us sound like awkward to work. We're not kind of, but, you know, we care. And we, we say what we think because we care, not because we don't, you know? <laughs> yeah, but it too, there's no silver bullet, of course. And I think a huge part to all of this, if you were to liken a golden key to unlocking a whole host of things, it'd be to understand your value system. Because those two yeah, organizations, yeah. right, they'll have completely different metrics and outlooks yeah. of what success looks like for them. Yeah, totally. But then I think that's a podcast for another day. But Dave, I mean, yeah. I have to say it's been an absolute privilege to have you on. I've been chasing your tail for a while now. So it's yeah, been good to set the day <laughs> in the box. But before we go, um, as I do with every guest that comes on the show, I ask them, what would be the one bit of advice you'd give for anyone who's looking to thread a similar path to yourself in the sports industry? Ooh, similar path to me, geez, I don't know, but I, I think a similar path within the is just be curious and be open, you know, and don't think that you that there is a path that there is a path that you have to go down. It's just you know the biggest criticism like people will come to us and go, you know, I'm going to stay in this role. I'm hating it. I've been here six months, but I know for my CV that I need to stay here for two years because otherwise that looks bad. And I'm like, honestly. If you come back to me in 18 months and you're still there, I'll never speak to you again because you clearly hate it and it's okay. I mean, if you move every six months for 25 years, clearly there's something wrong. But if there's one place where you don't fit and you therefore stand up for yourself and what you believe in, no problem at all, you know? So just be kind of true to yourself, be authentic, be curious, get out there and just like look at what's going on because, and just enjoy it. You know, don't over think your career in a set that absolutely plan things but 
too often people who are over engineer their career don't love what they do so you gotta you gotta love what you do and just enjoy that journey first um absolutely plan but don't over plan at the same time thanks stuff dave thank you so much for coming on the show today Connie, welcome and thank you for um being patient and uh it's, it's great to be on here i, I really love what you're doing things fantastic